Hello, the internet, and welcome to the Screen and Needle podcast, where my compadres and I get to select one film, one album, and a top five list each week to be reviewed and discussed over a pint or two. I hope you'll join us for a drink and some daft chat about pop culture. My name is Will Holden, and I am joined today by Andy Melbourne. How you doing, buddy? <laughs> yeah, I'm good, thanks, mate. And Mark Wall. How's it going, man? All good, man. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Today are my choices, and the film that we're going to be discussing is Sorry to Bother You. It was released in 2018. It's directed by Boots Riley, stars uh, Lakeith Stanfield, Tessa Thompson, uh, Terry Crews, Danny Glover, Stephen Yen, David Cross, Patton Oswald, and many others. Uh, it's about Cassius Green, who is given the metaphorical key to telesales success, but this success leads to dark truths. Is it worth it for him? It is morally emaciated. I can't ride with you. I'm doing something I'm really good at. Cash, I'm going to make you a proposal. I can see that you want to say no. But I wouldn't do that before you see what I'm offering. So, what do you guys think of Sorry to Bother You? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? So this is, I saw it a few months back. I think the first time I watched it, the second half where it goes super weird and out yeah. there was the kind of appealing point to me. I'd, I'd really quite liked the the weirdness and mm. this time around i didn't remember it that well i think i actually kind of preferred the first half sure it's, it goes quite off the rails which i know is its intent it didn't work for me quite as well where it goes yeah it's just i don't know it's a, it's a tonally very strange film yeah i mean i think we'll, we'll come back around to the ending and the extreme weirdness I think mm-hmm. it's a film of like extreme metaphor, though. Like it's 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 all metaphor, but pushed up to ten. So everything is is sort of bombastic and huge. Uh, Andy, what was your what was your take in on the film? I really enjoyed it. I think it was. You're right about it. Kind of everything being pushed to the max. Like it, it seemed to have quite a lot of um, like messages that it wanted to get across, and I think the kind of the like anti-capitalist, like anti-big business mm-hmm. um, sort of agenda that it had really worked. And I think some of the other, it's a bit like Scattergun. Yeah. I think not everything worked for me. There's so much going on all the time. I, I'm with Mark as well. Like I really like the weirdness, but yeah, overall, like very positive, but but I do have like some criticism for it. Sure. I think it is a film of two, like two quite distinct halves. Uh, it starts off as kind of just a quirky drama about a guy down on his luck in this, what appears to be kind of uh, altered reality version of America, where all of the worst 
compulsions of kind of uh, modern society are on show. People watch TV sh- game shows that are just about somebody being punched in the face, and there's no other seeming point to it than that. And slowly, it just starts to introduce its kind of brand of weirdness. I think early on, that could be perceived as what he's seeing in his head or, or just a representation of how he's feeling. Um, he's got that picture of a person who I think is named at the beginning and then they don't really describe who he is, what the relationship is to him, but he, he existed and died. I presume that was his dad, but I've no idea. Yeah, they don't really get into it, but his picture keeps changing from like giving him a thumbs up or head in hands, depending on kind of what he's doing. I think that could be viewed as just a a visual representation of what's in his head. But as the film progresses, the weirdness becomes tangible. I didn't have any expectations going into it or really know anything about it. I think the first big thing that happens for that kind of weirdness is the the first time he's making making phone calls as a telemarketer mm-hmm. and like it's his death kind of crashing into those people's lives that he's calling. Yeah. yeah. I, fa- I found that like pretty jolting. That Not that that's a bad thing, but it just kind of comes out of nowhere. I wasn't expecting that kind of weirdness. I think some of the surrealism does come kind of quickly out of left field and the film doesn't start that way. It doesn't, no. it doesn't set you off. Like you, I didn't know anything about this. And I saw this for the first time in the cinema when it came out, just as a bit of a whim, just went to see it. And again, having known nothing about it is quite a surprise. I do think it had an early nod to like that kind of subversion uh, when they're in bed and it just seems like a normal room. And then it transpires quite quickly that it's a, a garage and the door opens onto the street and everything. Yeah, Yeah, but it's more... It's more comic, isn't it, than sort of surrealism. Yeah, it, like it's a, it's the punchline to a joke. Yeah, agreed. But I do like those little touches of invention. Mm. Mm. There are some other bits I liked where um, Cassius is in the call centre. He's just finished a call. He turns to no one and says the first line of the next scene. He says, like, you're going to shove all those fries in your face. And then the next image is, is him and his friend in a club while his club's stuffing fries into his face. And it had that sort of extra level of surrealness mm-hmm. where he is he's pushing through scenes just by like bits of dialogue. It's a lot later on bits. So I won't talk about it too much, but the claymation when he's trying to sell him the idea of like the horse-man hybrid. <laughs> Imagine if you hadn't seen this. And, um, at, the, at the end of that, it says, directed by Michelle Bondry or something like that. Yeah. Which I presume is just a, like a little nod to Michelle Gondry. But, I would guess so, yeah. But I, loads of it looks like it could be a Michelle Gondry or a Charlie Kaufman film. Like it, it's got that kind of that surrealist, slightly like, like meta view. I like that level of kind of casual surrealism, though. So much of the absurdity is just taken without comment or like uh, Terry Crews is his uncle slash landlord at the beginning. And there's a bit where he's just got this huge gold cross resplendent with our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, he just he pulls it up and like pops a pez out the bottom of it because his diabetes are up <laughs> like he's, but nobody nobody blinks an eye like he does all of this and they all just go right yeah that seems that seems fine so yeah we, we follow Cassius as he gets this job as a telemarketer 
and he learns that the key to success is using his white voice given to him by Danny Glover, who shows him how to how to perform the white voice on the on his telecalls. The voices, well, there's a couple of people who do white voice. The two prominent ones are done by David Cross and Patton Oswalt. When I was um, watching that, like the first time you hear Danny Glover use his white voice, my first reaction was like, is that like that's dubbed, isn't it? It's like it just sounds so weird. And then as soon as you hear uh, like Cassius speak. It's like, well, it is dubbed because that's David Cross. Like, it's a very yeah. recognisable voice. Like, it's clearly on purpose. Like, it's supposed to be sort of jolting and weird. And but I did. It took me a second to pick up on that. It's like it yeah. seems like such a weird decision, but then you realise that it's very purposefully made like that. I think so. I think there are bits where it doesn't quite track with the mouths either perfectly, and I kind of feel that that has been maybe purposefully put in because the voice is is fake it's like a veneer and that, and that's one of the themes of the film about it is uh conformity and compromise and, and kind of fitting into different groups that cassius can't quite decide which side of the fence he wants to be on but to give a bit more context so he, he gets his job he has this white voice and he does so well that uh he becomes a power caller yeah which he soon finds out means that you're still working in telesales, but now you are selling arms and <laughs> most prominently a sort of modern slave labor. That's a great line right, leading into that bit where when he asks, is it like, like apples and oranges, the power caller as opposed to what he's doing in the telesales? Yeah, and he says um, it's like apples and the Holocaust, <laughs> and that's it. Like they are, it, it is without any moral bounds. But in this particular world, they seem to be the only people making money. Like everybody else is is broke all the time. Uh, so a company has set up a brand called Worry Free, where people sign lifelong contracts to perform labour, with the proviso that they basically get housed and fed. For the, for the remainder of their lives and their children's lives, it would appear. And one of Cassius's jobs is selling effectively this slave labor. It's kind of at this point then that his girlfriend and artist played by Tessa Thompson starts to question his moral standing in this company that's come with all this great success. That's one of the threads that, didn't quite work for me. I think it's very tough to balance that kind of human drama with kind of satire and surrealism and comedy. And the human drama stuff kind of falls a bit by the wayside. I don't, I think one of my issues with the film in general, the main guy, Cassius, I don't think he's tremendously likable. And obviously there's this thing going throughout where she's sort of, keeps referring to how real he is and kind of what a great guy he is. And you never really see that. He's just sort of shown as, you know, wanting to find status and I think that's it though, isn't it? Like straight away. You see that in the last ten minutes. Well, more than ten minutes. The the end part of the film anyway. Yeah, he it, comes back around. But yeah. I, I don't know. I'd I'd have kind of liked it if they'd actually set it up a bit in the first place. He's I don't know, it's difficult to root for him. I know he does turn in the end, I suppose, but... 
Yeah, I don't think that's unfair. Like, I don't think they do a lot to establish who Cassius is prior to him getting involved. But I also, I, I kind of feel that the world is bad. Like, I think to be a good person in that world probably is very hard. Like, two things on that. I think, one, whether you find him likable or not, he's, he's not specifically doing anything wrong at the start. He's kind of following the American dream. Yeah, like, as it happens, I don't like. I agree with you. Like, that's not a. I, I don't think that's a dream you should be following. Like, he just wants to make money and you know lift himself above his like current sort of status in life. But secondly, I think like I absolutely agree with you on the the like human interest bits of the story. I, that's what I mean about it being scattergun. But like the whole thing with her sleeping with Squeeze is it, just it's a lot like it's a film that a lot happens and there's so little time kind of dedicated to those stories. It feels. You get Squeeze's backstory. He, uh, he unionized the sign twirlers in California. Yeah. (laughs) I just, (laughs) what more do you need to know? I just sort of feel like it didn't add anything to add that, those kind of that little love triangle in there. And Mm -hmm. there are a couple of bits like that. that I think like, actually if it stayed on message a bit more, like the, the main message really worked for me, but it sort of throws a lot of other stuff in there as well. It can't really like hit all of those things because it's so much it's trying to deal with. Definitely. I think there are quite a few characters that end up being sort of throwaway though. I mean, like Danny Glover kind of serves a purpose in the first half hour of the film and then mm-hmm. he, he's in it, but he's kind of just be relegated to a background character. Kate Berlant, who plays Diane Debor Cherry. Uh, uh, remind not, me who she was. Diane Debor Like trainers in the uh, call centre. Oh, yeah. I enjoyed that stuff, though. I did. I liked her as a character, but she just sort of disappears after a bit. And Yeah, but she's a proper side character. I don't mind that too much. That's just a just a side character. Like She's just part of the establishment of the call centre. Yeah, I did enjoy it, though. Um, just harking back to when you were saying about like the filmmaking and stuff, there's a kind of on-screen transition of Cassius sort of going from poor to rich. Yeah. And I really liked a lot of the stuff that happened in that kind of montage. Some of it was quite straightforward. Like he backed off the drive in his old car. And by the time he hit the road, it's a brand new Maserati. But there's a bit where they go back to, I think it's Detroit's apartment. Yeah. And the apartment like starts to fall apart and the TV comes in half and another TV. It's like, like the a, Ikea advert. Just like the Ikea advert, <laughs> but it all looks practical as well. Like people with yeah, this no, string are cool. just are pulling these props apart off, yeah. off screen. And it just, mm-hmm. I just thought it looked really cool. It was a great use of effects. I think in making this film, it tends to only use devices once, such as, as I said earlier, when he talks off, um, off screen to the next scene and flips into that that's that's only used once as a device and i quite like that that idea of just you know, i've done that now so i don't need to pepper my film with the same sort of little tricks yeah that's true i like that so i think we could probably move then to the the second half of the film as cassius moves up the ranks he finds out that the company that make worry free uh, have a new idea, and that is to <laughs> morph people into horsemen through a, like, like a modified cocaine. I mean, it is completely out of nowhere as well. For a bit, I thought it was just a like big 
drug addled sort of illusion bit, but it's obviously like key to the plot. Suddenly he opens a bathroom store and there's a like half horse, half man stood in yeah. there crying for help. Quick yeah, bit of trivia. Super effective. The quick bit of trivia. The first Equisapien, as they're called, in the uh in the cubicle is Forrest Whitaker. That's nice. that's his that's his role in the film. <laughs> <laughs> good, good stuff. Um I, I think it's the ultimate like blown out metaphor, isn't it? As the workforce being literal like pack horses being being turned into work animals. I think it is just that big overarching metaphor of the film of corporations versus kind of everybody else. I would say that's the plot line that I think is the most effective as well. Like it, because you kind of see it with the whole world. There's things like when they break the picket line for, uh, for cast to be able to get into work as like a power caller. That video goes viral of him being hit in the head by a Coke can. It's not picking anybody out. It's not picking out a government or... Like I read that this film, like it was written before the Trump administration and they purposely changed the odd bit to make sure that it didn't look like it was a sort of attack on Trump. Sure. Not, not that I got the idea that it was like pro-Trump. I think no. it was just, it kind of wanted to be a criticism of society as a whole. Like we're all part of this. It's not just yeah. big business because we're feeding big business rather than just getting focused on kind of one adversary. I was just going to ask you, what did you both think of the uh, special effects for the horsemen? I think it works. Like it's not, it it fits with the kind of surreal world. They've not CGI'd a super realistic horse-man hybrid. It wouldn't surprise me if that's a costume. Yeah, I was into it. I like that scene towards the end where he kind of frees the, the initial Equisapiens and they eventually come to their rescue when they are fighting the company as they have a plan to beat the power callers um, crossing the picket line. And eventually Equisapiens come to help. And at that time, Cassius is locked in a, in a truck and you just see all the action through this letterbox. And I think that was really effective. I mean, maybe just as a money-saving tactic. You don't have to show too much if you're funneling it through a, a tiny gap. But I thought it worked quite well just seeing the events happen through this little window. Yeah, I, I think it's it's fairly unique, which is always, well, not always, but often a plus point. Like, there's a couple of things which mildly Wes Anderson or something like that, but it it never... I don't know, he, he keeps his own vibe as well. Yeah, I just, It does I seem know. to be its own brand of weird, which can be tricky. I think sometimes people aim to emulate and just end up copying. Aren't they? Yeah. Because it opens up with this idea that, like, he's using his white voice because white people respond to that and it, you know, helps him get sales. And that being, like, a big part of the world, like, it's not just him. He's obviously introduced it to it through, like... Danny Glover's character and um oh I was gonna say I forgot his name. He doesn't have a name because they bleep it out every Mr. time. Yeah, Mr. Blank. He uses it as well. And then there's the bit where his girlfriend is doing her like performance piece and uses yeah. like a white voice as well during the performance. 
I felt like there was some kind of commentary on like racial inequality in there as well, but a lot of it just kind of passed me by. Like I don't. Yeah, quite... I couldn't. I couldn't really piece that together either. No the vibe I got from it. See, if, see if you agree. Is that the the white voice is, <clears throat> I think, a comment on America's culture of suggesting that kind of white middle America is the thing to aim for. And so the white voice promises people an idea of how they should be. And that is comforting. I think when he's doing the, like say the rap bit, is maybe a a view of kind of white America likes the novelty of black American culture, but only when it's under their thumb, only when it's under their control and at their speed. So making him rap in front of this room of white people that they all loved, but despite being bad at rap, the message I got there was like the, the white people love this as, as a kind of novelty act. Yeah, like a circus performer. Yeah. That was a vibe I got from it. I mean, I think it is high level. I, I don't think it is. It doesn't try to explain itself overly. Some of the metaphors are a bit more on the nose than others. I, yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, the, the main plot line is... Whereas I think some of that other stuff is just a bit more hidden. Yeah, I can go along with that. That makes sense. I, I just don't think he quite nailed that message. Uh, sure. And I think that's mainly because there were so many other messages going on. Yeah. I mean, her performance piece is... I think it's Cassius, isn't it? Stick what? to the script. She's just reading the same lines over and over again while people pillier with phones and empty bullets. Yeah. Um, she's him. She's being, yeah, she's just being Cassius and sort of throwing it back in his face, I think. Mm. Yeah, but as you say, there's a lot of a lot of themes in there about say conformity, a compromising of identity, being rich, being poor. <laughs> there are tons of uh, tons of themes flying about. But I think I'd agree with you overall. I think it gets the main message. Yeah, definitely. I think the ending slightly like it's a nice sort of happy ending. Kinda. Um, it's a district nine ending. No, I was going to say it's like it's a nice happy ending and then there's another five minutes of film. <laughs> yeah. Where you, just like it sort it. Of, it, you can say it like kind of wraps it up neatly in a bow. Like, you know, he kind of, he goes back to his old life, but it's it's an absolute classic film thing, isn't it? It's like you have the state of balance and then the unbalance and then you go back to a slightly different skew on the on the start. Like he literally moves back into the garage that they're living in but it's still yeah. got always fancy shit in it but yeah, yeah and then there's five minutes of film which seems slightly unnecessary like he goes off yeah. on a tangent that he doesn't need to would you have rather the the sort of neat ending that it first presents you with i think so like unless it's trying to set up a second film like it seems <laughs> It just seems unnecessary because obviously, like for context, you see him turn into one of the horse-man hybrids and you presume it's what he was given, which he thought was cocaine earlier on in the film. And then it shows him going around to the worry-free headquarters. Yeah, and um, him and a load of the horse people like kicking in their door, trying to get this antidote. And I think you're supposed to presume because he gets into the house that they probably achieve that. So it still kind of wraps it up, but it's already wrapped it up five <laughs> minutes earlier. Like, I don't understand like why two minutes from the end of the film, you'd 
throw another extra thing in and then sort of wrap that up. Got to be honest, like in, in context, I'd forgotten about the antidote. I thought they were just going there to kill him. I thought it was just plain, simple revenge. <laughs> I mean, it might be bullshit and there's no, <laughs> there's nothing further from there. So like I say, unless it's setting up a second, which would be mad. It doesn't seem like the sort of film that would have a sequel, but you could do one. Started off with the standpoint that he's half horse, half man. <laughs> <laughs> I'd watch it. I'm definitely Great. interested what the director does next. I will say that much. I don't. I think I looked it up, and I don't think he's done anything since. But I suppose it was only a couple of years ago. Is a um, yeah. like I'm not really aware of him, but he's a hip hop guy, isn't he? I think there's a couple of his songs on the soundtrack. Although tune yards do most of the soundtrack, which is interesting. If you know who they are or care, I uh, don't. Well, I don't not care, but I don't know who they are either. There yes, are like indeed. sort of. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of anything, but they're a very like offbeat sort of indie dance thing. I quite like the music in this film, despite it not necessarily being that musical and being a lot of soundscapes and just unsettling little twinkles of noise. But I thought it fit the vibe very well. I, I know you said earlier, Mark, that, well, I don't know if it was the character or Lakeith Stanfield, but. I liked his performance quite a lot. Like, I don't know if you've seen him in like anything else, but he's one of the main people in Atlanta. Right. Oh, right. And um, he doesn't play the same character, but there's definitely like, there's definitely things that are comparative, I think, between him. Like, he seems kind of in his own little world. Like, in, in Atlanta, he's the kind of dumb, quiet friend who just occasionally has like little moments of clarity. <laughs> where he says like something quite profound. I think there's sort of this like comparison there. Okay, so are we ready to go for our ratings? Yeah. Oh, okay. Go for it, buddy. I, I haven't really said very much about this one. And I think that's kind of reflective of my score because there wasn't really anything I massively disliked and there are some definite high points. I definitely respect the ambition I like that it's experimental and everything, but it just doesn't quite gel together altogether for me. Okay. Um, so I'm just going right right down the middle with a six. Okay. Andy, what's your what's your reckoning? I'm definitely higher than that. I think I I agree with all of those points, really. I but I think it's basically over ambitious, but I am super excited to see like what he does next. So for me, it's between a seven and an eight, but I'm going to go with seven. But yeah, generally pretty pretty positive on it. So it was yeah. very, very good. I think they are both very fair comments. And I think there are some issues with it. But I like, I like the script. I like the patter of it. I like how the characters interact. And despite there being a, a, a bit of mixed messaging in the overall multiple themes of it i just i quite enjoy this as a watching experience um and it's an eight eight for me i think it's fair i think it's the sort of film where it's the sort of thing where you can see people hating it and giving it three out of ten and people loving it and giving it ten out of ten like it's yeah it throws a it throws a lot at you. <laughs> but i always think like if 50 percent of people hate something it's probably worth my time mm. <laughs> Yeah, if 100% of people like it, it's probably just just vanilla. 
I don't like this podcast. I think that's that bad, helps. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's only a third of people who don't like it, unless Mark's Mark hates it as well. Mark's on the fence. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. Okay, well, I'm indifferent, so we've got all of it. <laughs> okay, well, are we ready to move on to the album? No. No. I think we should... Uh... <laughs> oh, well. Oh, well. Well, oh, well. Well, oh, well. All right, I'm ready to defend myself. Right, so the album we're talking about is Ohms, released in 2020 by Deftones. It is their ninth studio album. I'm ready. I'm ready to be vilified, chaps. Lay it on me. This is out of my wheelhouse, essentially. And I knew I wasn't going to like it. But I really wanted to go into it and say, like, I've listened to it and it's not necessarily my taste, but I can see what's appealing about it. Like, there's lots of interesting musical stuff and things (laughs) like that. And I really hope that you like it because I'm basically just going to rag on it for the next 20 minutes. That's right. I went in with low expectations and I hated it more than I thought I would. (laughs) like i think i'm just going to sound like somebody who just doesn't like this type of music but i mean that's all right that's that's a valid opinion (laughs) yeah but i wanted i want to analyze it more than that and and i think like i just can't find much in it that i think has any sort of musical merit (laughs) mark do you want to uh do you want to stick a couple more jabs in (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it, it's shit, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, Andy, like, you could pretty much copy and paste what Andy just said, and uh, it's exactly the same. I actually found it difficult to to go back and listen through it again, because obviously the whole point of doing this is to give things a fair chance, and we've yeah. already seen that your opinion can change. So... I think it was 20 seconds, well, to be honest, almost instantaneously on the first track, I was like, right, this is this is bad. Mm-hmm. Kicks in, this is worse. Start singing, you've just dropped another grade. <laughs> I <mean> it, <laughs> like, I agree, there's almost nothing of merit. I'm desperately seeking some positives, and it just, it never changed for me. Every time I went back to it, it was a chore. It wasn't something where I was finding new things and i think earlier this afternoon i listened to a few tracks and i've never been able to listen to the whole thing in one go either <laughs> first listen um, i listened to like i think i got through five tracks and yeah i was just like i can't i can't do this anymore oh i have two positives oh i've got one, one. uh i noticed a couple of bass lines never noticed the bass lines pretty much the only guy doing anything at all like melodically <laughs> that um, and two, the guitars in one of the songs. It's got the link in the title. What's it's called, called This Link is Dead. Yeah. Had some kind of Sonic Youth discordant stuff going on, which was, of course, destroyed by the vocals and every other element. But yeah, 
it's it's bad man all right go for it i i, I want to know what you've got to i just want to hear andy's sing, singular positive before i uh um i think some of the slightly dissonant harmonies are interesting but they're so fleeting and like mark said they're backed up by so much dross i'm excited to hear what you say well because i you're gonna have to explain to me what what people see in it i mean i I don't think i'm gonna be able to uh i don't think i'm gonna be able to sway you because so much is just based purely on opinion like i really like his voice i really like his sort of lazy delivery it's got a sort of shoegaze quality to it where it's it's just sort of done with a, a kind of casualness that i really dig i mean i love angry music uh that's what kind of gets my blood going and when we post lockdown played in a band together always my favorite bits were where louis starts to get angry at the mic and the best bits we've never had an angry section that is over one chord and a riff that has two notes in it yeah and the like best it's just a bit the, doesn't have to be long to be the best. Yeah, but they just just, has to, just has to be the best. Yeah, but that's the chorus. Like, it's just <laughs> never do. There's nothing wrong with like having that sort of like emotion in your song or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with it having stripped back. But the entire album just has no. There's no interest. You're just talking I mean, about again, like an emotion it. from it. That <laughs> I think that's it. Like, I just disagree like i do i find it interesting i like the vibe of it i like that the album has a an overarching sound and that it it works as a kind of concept in overall sound if not necessarily in uh like theme yeah it's hard it's going to be hard because like i say it's just it's pure uh, opinion base i mean it's not it's not complicated music by any stretch of the imagination they're one of those bands that exist within metal but have always just had their own sound i think metal is one of those genres where it's very easy to sound like everybody else they still sound to me exactly the same as they did on their first album except they've digressed if anything what's the word that's not a word is it it is a word i mean yeah (laughs) is it a word i mean no (laughs) (laughs) but Um, it is a word (laughs) oh god yeah, they've, they've just kind of churned out the same product and it's just got worse and worse. I mean, like, take Change in the House of Flies, which is one of the few songs I know by them. Mm-hmm. That song is way better than anything on this record because it's got an actual hook to it. And then, um, like, the first song and Around the Fur, yeah. um, My Own Summer there's some riffs there and a bit of energy. And and the thing is with this latest one, it's just devoid of anything. It's just noise and annoying noise that just makes me want to turn it off immediately. I mean, I kind of, I see the thing with his voice back in a song, like changing the house of flies. Mm -hmm. There's kind of melodies there. Half of this album is just screaming and the guy can't scream. Why would you do that? I don't know. Yeah, I don't, what I was going to ask, I keep getting sidetracked, sorry, but what I was going to ask is, do you think it's born of liking this kind of music when you were younger? And yeah, just sort of... I, was, I totally agree with that. Is it a nostalgia thing? I mean, that's like saying, is any of your taste a nostalgia thing? <laughs> like, unless you but, discovered it yesterday. I mean, no, yeah, but, absolutely. Like, but, this is the music I, I listen to 
yeah, as since being a teenager, and there's definitely a nostalgia for it. But I, I mean, mean, like when you were listening to that, I was listening to shit indie. And yeah. when I go back and listen to shit indie, I've been watching Scrubs recently, and that is an absolute treasure trove of uh, like it is a glorious shit indie soundtrack throughout it. And um, like I'm unashamed to go back and listen to that, but it's not it's not good. <laughs> I think that's the point. There's there's stuff I liked when I was a a child slash teenager that I now look back on and feel slightly embarrassed about. And even even when I was younger... (laughs) I feel like you're applying your experiences to me right now. I look back on this and I still like it. Okay. (laughs) That's the problem. I'm I'm trying to come at you. We're all coming at each other from a, a, just at a pure opinion base. Like there's no, of course, there's actual no musical discussion here. Okay. (laughs) Musical discussion then. So track um, six. Pompeii. Yeah. I wrote down like it was, it's just one example. Like I could have picked out almost anything, but the chorus is super sparse. It's kind of, it's a bit of a drone chorus. It's pretty much on one, on one chord. And there is space, there's like a vocal line, and then there's a space. And the riff is literally a like... Like it is two notes, and there is nothing to it. And there is, there's just space in the music there for an interesting, big, beefy riff. Like something that's a hook that you can grab onto. I think it is such a like disappointing thing to waste that with just a boring two-note like drone thing and i just think yeah. it's what i think it's what they do all the time like this where the space for like interesting riffs or interesting melodies i think they're just wasted i think they never happen it's yeah, why i find ev- a... everything on it forgettable i agree there's there's songs where they just hit a big chord for the chorus and you're like okay where are they going to go next what 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 can they conjure up now Surely in this song they're going to do something else, and then no, they just play the same chord again for eight minutes. <laughs> and they have a they have two things as well. I think there's like that heavy thing that they do, and then there's that like dreamscape thing that they do. And I think Which, the dreamscape thing I don't think is any better because they never go anywhere with that either. Like it just like there's a tempo change, it gets a bit slower, and there is a slow like guitar picking lead line over one or two chords yeah that's it i just think there's no i think there's no depth there like there's nothing interesting i think from my perspective i I sort of disagree that it's devoid of of hooks and it is memorable to me um but i think i just like the overall kind of vibe of the the sound like i can't conflagrate complexity with quality um, yeah, but you told you, me you told me musical. You told me to go at you with a musical, musical criticism. So defend it musically. You can't say you just like the vibe. I think that's part of the music, isn't it? That the overall uh, timbre. There you go, dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just I, at the moment, I think that's a case of it isn't complicated and therefore it isn't good if you don't like what they've produced with two notes that's all right but i'm sure there are examples of things with two notes that you do like i uh, that is true okay so i think there are examples when like verses do this sometimes where you hit like one chord or two chords and it stays on that for such a length of time and the payoff for that is when it moves away from it 
Mm-hmm. It's almost like a release. It's like a relief. And if you don't have the relief moment, then the lead up to it is pointless. I can see it, I guess. But yeah, I I can't really argue anything that isn't uh, opinion-based and vice versa. Um, watch your, watch favourite tracks. We usually do that, don't we? <laughs> yeah, what's your favourite track? I'll give you my Radiant City is uh, is easily my favourite track. Mine do you remember is, any I of think- them? A link between worlds or a link to the past. <laughs> the link is dead. This link is the link is dead. <laughs> oh, Christ. Uh, probably the last one. I don't hate the last one as much as I hate um, most Holmes. of the The album song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think last week Mark was a little concerned that he'd bring stuff that would, you know, just get all the similar marks. I think I've broken that trend. I was um you have I was talking to somebody <laughs> talking to somebody about this uh the other day but I really like hating on things so I don't have a problem I've done, I've not enjoyed listening to it but I've really enjoyed talking about it That's fair I mean it's been hard in the defending corner I'll admit uh, <laughs> I still I I kind of half get where you're coming from and then I don't because it's there's still the the basis of your argument basically seems to be well i mean you like, agree so that there's nothing interesting going on well no i disagree but, i i agree with your point of view that you don't find it interesting but, but you've not <laughs> told not us what you thing. find interesting what, what do you, you find interesting that, where where is the like point of interest okay fair enough fair enough um i mean you mentioned it earlier and you also commented they were fleeting but i do i like the weird harmonies that pop up every now and again I find it music I can just get sort of lost into. Uh, I do. I like the dreamscape stuff. I kind of like that almost dream poppy. I like dream got, pop as well, but that is not dream pop. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like throwing in a synth every like yeah, you when know, dream, dream 20 skate. seconds occasionally. It's um, fair I enough. I like, I like the bits that aren't dream pop then. <laughs> I'd still like it nonetheless. You like the quieter uh, bits? Yeah, the quieter bits. And you like um, his voice. And I like his voice. And I mean, there, there are a couple of bits where I think it has a, I don't even know how to describe it, like a poppy sound. And I don't mean that like popular culture. I mean, literally like it has a, I mean, I think in a Radiant City specifically, has that almost like bass rhythm at the beginning that runs throughout a lot of the song. And I just like that. I kind of like the, it's not, drone music is not my usual forte i must admit but in this i do i just get just get lost in the in the sea of drone look i like that you like it <laughs> thank you <laughs> it's it's why it's i was asking his... whether it was nostalgic because i can get the idea that i grew up liking that sound and i still like that sound i, I it just doesn't it just doesn't fit in with anything else that you like. It doesn't have any of the... There's, you like stuff from lots of different worlds and there are some similarities between them. And I think the kind of similarities that they have are also crossovers that me and Mark have. And I think mm. this album has none of those at all. No. And, and that's why I can't understand liking it aside from a nostalgia point of view. I mean, this is a, a new album. So this particular album... I understand nostalgia for deaf, deaf tones and, and the yeah. genre and, and all that. I mean, this, like I said, this album's brand new. I guess that's partly why I brought it to the table, is it is a bit of my taste that 
we don't share and therefore doesn't come up in conversation very often because it's it'd just be me <laughs> but yeah there it is <laughs> I'm, I'm genuinely like i'm not criticizing you for bringing it it was a difficult listen this week and i will not be going back and listening to it again that's fair but i've enjoyed us we've had two albums the last couple of weeks that generally most of us have liked mm-hmm. it's uh it's definitely nice to to have a bit of a bit of an argument about something <laughs> absolutely uh, well dare i say it do you want to give you ratings lads i give you a five out of ten for your defense of it wow valiant but thwarted <laughs> and uh yeah the album i, I it's a one out of ten i, I think it's dreadful Andy, are you going to reciprocate? I wrote down two out of ten, and I, I'll stick with that. I think I gave a whole point for the dissonant vocal harmonies that come in to half a chorus about every third song, and I don't mind Don't that. use it too much, man. Don't use it too much. Give the goods away. God, if you'd use it every song, it might have got a three out of ten. I feel like two out of ten is generous. Okay, fair. Well, I'm going to give it a seven as the uh, the lone defender. <laughs> Good man. Uh, I like this album, and uh, I must in the in the world of music journalism, as little as that means to me, it did get quite uh, quite well received overall. It did. I read some. It was because I was genuinely struggling to see what people liked it. <laughs> So I read some reviews. Fair, fair. I just got one question. Okay, buddy. Before, which I don't think you, knowing you, I don't think you care like a damn, like you're just fine with it. And I'm almost certain that's your answer. But does it like kind of annoy you or pain you in any way that we're so negative about something that you actually quite like? Not really, no. I mean, it's, you know, in the moment of the defense, I want to, I want to give it a good defense. Um, Yeah. And struggle to, you're right, beyond my own just base opinion of it. But whether you like it or not, no, it doesn't, doesn't really bother me. No, that's fair. Right, okay, so after that disaster, let's move to uh, <laughs> our top five lists. This week's list is top five films based on a book. Who wants to kick us off? Yeah, I should say I've, I mean, the list of, films to pick from is massive so i decided to only pick from ones that i've read the book ah interesting because it one cut my list down and two i thought it was vaguely interesting to compare the film and book yeah that's that's quite a i considered doing the same and then i realized firstly i'd struggle to hit five they'd all be bond films <laughs> <laughs> if they weren't then we'd just be entering roll dull territory and I didn't really want to put... Oh, didn't even think you know. to roll that <laughs> Oh. I mean, yeah, mine would just be broadly um, comic book adaptations from the last 20 years, so it wouldn't have been a great list either. So my number five is American Psycho. Yeah, Brett Easton Ellis book. I've read a couple of Brett Easton Ellis books as well, and they're, they're disturbing. I think, like, the book is kind of more disturbing than the film is. If anything, it's a bit kind of reined in. Uh, there's, it's way more like hyper-violent and there's way more murders. Um, and some of them are pretty brutal. I think actually like the film, although it's kind of 
it is quite violent, obviously, and it's about um, an American psycho, a serial killer. I think the film does a really good, good way of making it kind of palatable. I don't think you see anything in it that you wouldn't see in a kind of standard horror film. Um, and it gets across the character as well without going into quite the levels of depth. Like the book has had whole chapters dedicated to like his obsession with music. Um, yeah. So uh, like a whole chapter where he's talking about Huey Lewis album or like a Genesis album. or Yeah, I think that the film gets across those kind of obsessions without necessarily needing to linger on them for longer than is needed. Because mm-hmm. you do get that. You do get like his his musical obsession, yeah. Um, and you you get who he is, and I think he his personality comes out through his actions rather than, as you say, any particular narrative or dialogue or anything like that. It's just what he does, and but uh, yeah, I think it's a really good adaptation. Like I say, it sort of makes it palatable for a cinema going audience, but keeps all the same messages and everything else from the book yeah Hale is awesome in it as well he is yeah he, he oh. kind of he almost seems to take elements of that phase bruce wayne i feel like i can see that yeah mm. yeah no great choice yep i'll just start mine by saying the thing that i criticized andy for doing a couple of weeks back where he said he'd avoid all the obvious ones and I was like, well, that's not your top five then. <laughs> yeah, I remember that, Dick. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm doing the exact same thing you did. <laughs> At least you've been honest about it. So number five, uh, I'm going to go for Jaws. Good choice. Yeah. There's not much to say about Jaws, really, is there? there I haven't read the book. Um, from what I understand, it's an example of where the film is a lot better than the book and it kind of cuts a lot of the crap out of it and obviously adds some cool stuff in. It's just a great film, isn't it? I mean, yeah. if anyone didn't have... like Jaws, you'd be slightly concerned about their <laughs> mental well-being, really. <laughs> I must admit that I, I didn't know Jaws was based on a book for a long time after watching it for the first time. And when I found the book in a shop... I thought, oh, this is just a crappy novelization of the film. Like, why would you novelize yeah. Jaws? <laughs> and then, yeah, uh, found out that it was not that. My number five is going to be Children of Men. Had no idea it was based on a book. I, to be honest with you, I didn't until I started doing this, uh, the research for the list, but found that it was, and that played perfectly into my hands. It's actually a film I've not watched for a few years. And when I watched it the first time, I think I watched it a few times in quick succession as I sort of showed it to new people mm-hmm. because I thought it was awesome. I really like that film. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just haven't watched it in ages. And like coming up on this list, I thought, oh, I'll get that back on the rewatch at some point. Same. I think I watched it when it came out and really loved it and haven't mm-hmm. watched it since. I barely remember it, apart from it being super bleak. Very bleak, just the, the quest of the, uh, in a world where nobody's having children, the last yeah. pregnant woman is being hunted by everybody. Bleak. Cool, good choice. Billy likes bleak. Andy, number four. Uh, so my four is Fight Club, based on a Chuck Palahniuk book. 
which is a fun thing to say. I don't actually I... know that that's how you pronounce his name. It's just how I've always pronounced his name. I think it is. I think I think. Mm. I mean, I've I've joined you in this now, so if we're both wrong, I'm blaming you. Cool. Um, how does this compare book to film? Uh, the film is considerably better than the book, I would say. That's interesting, because I don't like the film. Oh, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, I don't really like Fight Club. Uh, Chuck Palahniuk's a like, interesting author, but yeah, he definitely doesn't nail it a lot of the time, I think. It always has kind of weird, very adventurous ideas for plots. Mm. Yeah, I've read a couple of his books and they don't always work for me. Uh, and I think this one, like, there's not as big a separation of the characters. I will say as well, like, it's a film that once you've watched it once, it's never going to watch as well again on, like, repeat watches. But once you kind of know where the plot is going, it's guessable the first time. Like, if you don't guess it the first time, it's probably an incredible sort of twist for you. Mm. But, but I yeah, think, I think you're right. Like the twist ending has has one one charge in it, really, doesn't it? <laughs> Once you know it, it don't get me, its magic. Don't get me wrong; I'm still defending it. Like I think it, I think like the separation of the kind of the two characters or the two part of one person, mm-hmm. there isn't enough kind of polar opposite views in the book, and I think kind of splitting those a little bit more definitely helps. And I think the the ending's different in the book, and the ending doesn't work anywhere near as well like right it basically ends up in a mental institution and like the uprising thing is still kind of happening without him oh yeah uh, it, it sort of, yeah it sort of feels like a disappointed ending now i think where well, it ends with like the scene where they're like watching the explosion and the pixies track like where is my mind is playing and it's a super good ending <laughs> Yeah, I think the adaptation of the book is miles better than the book itself, but I think it's could, a great, great film. Could be a case of overhype for me. I came in being told that this was a, you know, masterpiece of a film, and it, it didn't quite meet those expectations. So for me, it could just be a case of being going in with with too much hype. It's four on my list. I'm not sure I'd give it masterpiece status, but definitely an out, eight out of ten. Yeah, I think that's how it's sold sometimes, isn't it? I think it's viewed as a seminal work and I, I just didn't think it was yeah that's a, i was gonna say that's fair it's it's not you're wrong mark what's your uh number four uh number four bit of a cheat if i have to choose one it's an alistair mclean double bill basically which i the obvious one is where he goes there which is a beautiful film mm-hmm. my dad's favorite have, film yeah it's it's, it's fantastic and I have read the book for that one. I think it's one of the only ones in my top five that I have. And I think it's very similar, very faithful adaptation. But yeah, love Richard Burton. Eastwood's great. Um, Just all the dialogue and everything is so good. It's such a good uh, kind of adventure film, I think. All the set pieces still hold up. When I watched it when I was super young, I always found it kind of slow uh, for the first half, which it is. But now I like that. It just gradually draws you in. Mm. It's just, I, yeah, it's, it's pretty much a five out of five film for me, I think. I was just going to say, I think it starts off as a tense spy thriller and then becomes a sort of action escape movie at the end. It's 100% a film of two halves. I'm with you, Mark, yeah. as well. Like, I love both halves. 
I the slow, the slow like spy build is excellent. And like you say, it's just a chase scene for the second half of the film. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's fantastic. And the other one I did want to mention, I know it's a cheat, but I had to throw it in there is uh, when eight bells toll mm. uh, with Sir Anthony Hopkins as a a young Sir Anthony Hopkins as a spy. And it's a spy film set in Scotland, which is immediately pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Did I watch this one with you, Will, once yeah, on a time? Yeah, we watched this one together years yeah. ago. I always felt it was um, like his trial run for Bond mm. or the film he made when he wasn't Bond. You know, it just feels yeah, like Anthony Hopkins as Bond, but not Bond. It it does, which is probably why I like it, I think. I wish, I wish he'd done a couple more movies as that character. I'll freely admit it's not an amazing film, but I'd probably watch it once every two years and every single time. Oh, it's got its I enjoy charm. it quite a bit. But anyway, uh, what's your number four, man? Uh, my number four is going to be Minority Report, based strictly on a short story, but it's still a book. It's in my uh, honourable mentions, and I don't have many because... Uh... I was always picking things that I've read. (laughs) I think a little bit, as you were saying, with uh, Chuck Palahniuk, that Philip K. Dick is sort of an ideas man that he often struggles to flesh out into an actual story. But I think on multiple occasions, his stories have been turned into successful films where somebody else has kind of um, trimmed off the fat and got a core tale out of it. The film is accurate to the book for the mm-hmm. first 10 minutes. Yeah. And then the book's finished. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, the book, the book is essentially just the idea. Yeah. Like, this I is th- a thing. By, but yeah, I just think he's got he's got some great ideas that really translate into cinema well um, and often have a very cool sort of visual slant to them. Blade Runner is obviously the most obvious example or the most famous example. Yeah, of his work, and that is quite different to the book. The core concept, again, is there, but the events are quite different. But yeah, Minority Report, I think, is is built on that cool idea, but has a fun kind of an action and adventure story that sort of keeps you watching for the two-hour runtime or what have you. Uh, so my number three is uh, Big Fish, which is based oh. on, a, on a David Wallace book. I kind of forgot how much I love that film. I was just flicking across my bookcase for ideas, basically. The film is by telling a story, basically like a guy's dad is dying and his dad is a a sort of massive character who's got these like ridiculous sort of fantasy stories about his life that he's heard hundreds of times before. And the book is basically just a collection of those stories and it's really short as well. Like it's barely a, it is a like a short story essentially. And the film adds in, like, I think it's genuinely like poignant through it. Like that kind of connection between him and his dad, they don't really play up at all in the book. <clears throat> and I think like Tim Burton goes kind of further with the stories as well. Like they're, they're bigger and they're more vibrant and, it's nice to see a like super positive Tim Burton film as well. Like the it has all that Tim Burtonness in it, but it's just yeah, camper. Yeah, it's bright and camp and vibrant and vibrant yeah. and fun. And like I say, when it sort of 
it goes back to just being a story between him and his dad. It's genuinely touching, and I, I think it plays the sort of sentimentality really well. I really love that film. <laughs> I've not yeah, seen it I've... in ages, and I like I'm going to watch it soon because I remembered how much I love that film. Yeah, I haven't watched it in years, and I'm glad you've you're glad you've brought it up because um, it is it's a really fun film. I've not seen it, unfortunately. You oh, should definitely I think... definitely worth a watch. Yeah, I think it's probably my favourite Tim Burton film. Nice. So, Marco, you're number three, buddy. Yeah, uh, number three, I'm going to go with the Studio Ghibli film Howl's Moving Castle, which was based on a book by Diana Wynne-Jones. I did not know that was based on a book. I didn't know that either. Yeah, it was one I was aware of that, actually. I think I just must have read it or seen it in the credits or something. Um, with a lot of mine I wasn't aware either but yeah I think it's interesting because most of Miyazaki's movies he wrote and he's obviously got a wild imagination mm-hmm. and I would be interested I haven't really done any research and read the book obviously I imagine he changed quite a bit but I think it's one of the most underrated Ghibli films I love How Was Moving Castle it's definitely top three Ghibli for me really holds up to rewatches as well. I think it's one of their most visually stunning ones. And again, just the imagination on the display is fantastic. And so for an adaptation of a children's book to sort of be that visually stunning and mm. imaginative, yeah, I just love the film. So I agree with you. I think it is like up there um, of the Ghibli films, one of, the, one of my favourites, definitely. I think yeah. it's... Interesting that it's based on a book because the Studio Ghibli's are some of the few anime that aren't directly based on a existing manga, like an existing property. Yeah, um, I did find in my research that Grave of the Fireflies is also based on a book. Mm-hmm. But I haven't seen it, so I didn't include it in my in my top five. But I didn't come across Howl's Moving Castle, so that's interesting. Yeah. My number three is the 1962 Manchurian Candidate. Yeah, good um, choice. Go for it. Frank Sinatra and Angela Lansbury, a sort of uh, Cold War kind of espionage film, I guess, but really about um, hypnosis and mind control of the evil red states. Uh, it's a very stylishly shot film, um, and a scene that sticks my mind is a bit in a in a courtroom where the the viewer is watching the crowd, but it, within the shot, there's a monitor of what is happening at the front of the court. So you get both perspectives in one shot. Um, and there are some other really interesting sort of movie making choices in it. It's just a really intriguing kind of cold war film. And Sinatra puts in an incredible performance a bit of trivia, apparently he just nailed every scene first time. I didn't need any retakes for Sinatra. <laughs> uh, Angela Lansbury is really good in it. Murder, she wrote, doing a, a sinister turn in that film. Yeah. Oh, it's a corker. Agreed. Cool. So I watched my number two yesterday, uh, which is Gone Girl. Oh, uh, yeah. Based on the Gillian Flynn book. Mm-hmm. Was yeah, that a meant... first time watch or no? I've uh, I've seen it about five times. Oh. <laughs> I re- I okay. really love that film. I think Gillian Flynn is like she's moving into 
uh, screenplays and things like that. Like, I know she was involved in the like American adaptation of Utopia, and I think all of the things that she's written have been turned into like TV series or or films. I don't know if you've seen Sharp Objects, Amy Adams no. TV series. I've always seen a couple of them, but that's in good as well. So she writes like quite cinematically, but yeah, I think it's incredibly like true to the book. There are a few differences which are kind of interesting. That the plot's so well written. Yeah, I think Rosamund Pike is is perfect in it. One of my just favourite performances as some like a like a psychopath essentially. I think um, it's quite a star turn by a lot of the cast. I think there's a lot of. Yeah, it's got my boy, my boy Ben Affleck in it as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who Affleck I think is also actually. really good in it. David Fincher is one of my favourite directors. But one thing that stood out is like, do you remember the scene where um, Amy kills uh, Desi? Roughly. She basically like lures him into sex and then like cuts his throat. Oh God, yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> I mean, that is a just brutal scene. He's on top of her and there's just mountains of blood everywhere. And yeah, that's not in the book. Like she does kill him, but it's just... A... <laughs> I can't remember how she kills him, but it's a... I was gonna say a normal killing. You know, how do you how you do a normal killing? But yeah, it's definitely not like mid-sex. <laughs> it's not absolutely brutal. Yeah, it's just David Fincher into it, just decided to knock it up to eleven. <laughs> it's a great choice. I think maybe unlike Fight Club, despite the twist being known, I think just the core performances and the the underlying tension that runs through the film is enjoyable enough that it doesn't matter that you know the twist on repeat viewings. I think it's still an enjoyable watching experience, even with that. I love watching it with somebody for the first time, though. It's just the best. Okay. Mark, you're number two. Okay. Number two for me is Papillon. Oh, Papillon. Which is a 1973 film by Franklin J. Scheffner. It's based on a book by Henri Charrier. He was a real-life escaped convict or whatever who wrote a book about it, and allegedly he says 70% of the book is true or something like that. I've only ever seen it once, but it's always stuck in mind. I think it's just got... But both my top two, I feel, have that certain thing which just makes a great film great, and you can, can't quite place your finger on it. But <clears throat> it's Steve McQueen... Dustin Hoffman. It's got a great Jerry Goldsmith score. Cinematography is amazing. It's got a couple of like dream sequences in it. I think everyone always talks about Shawshank as the great prison movie. I prefer Papillon personally. I don't know. It's just epic as well. It, it goes to so many different places, both literally and metaphorically. It just I don't know. It's yeah. I think Papillon feels more like the the sort of human cost of being a prisoner. Yeah. As opposed to Shawshank just being kind of about the, I mean, some hard, you know, very hard times, but ultimately it's about the plot, about him getting out. and. Yeah, it's it's a feel-good film ultimately, isn't it? And yeah, pa- yeah. Papillon's not so much. Yeah, yeah it, has, it has moments which are definitely feel-good, but the ending's always stuck with me as well, where for whatever reason, and it's just kind of out of nowhere, it just starts focusing on still shots of various places from the film there's almost like a horror soundtrack over it 
yeah, I just it's a fantastic film which I need Spare. to rewatch. No, another good choice. It's interesting to, to hear that you've only seen it once, Mark, because I've only seen it once and it was with you. Yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten <laughs> I'd watched it with you, you know, but yeah, now you mentioned just it. Interesting to know that's been your only viewing as well. Yeah, I'd, well, it's not the sort of film you're just going to put on for light entertainment, is it, I suppose? But... <laughs> it's, it's not your Sunday <laughs> afternoon chill out, no. no. Okay, uh, my number two is Fantastic Mr. Fox. Ah, oh, Christ, I never even thought about Lovely that. Stuff. What, a, what a choice. What a film. Yes, please. Again, unfortunately, it isn't a book that I've read, even as a child. But the film is just perfect. It is the perfect family animation film. They do that tricky thing that only the best animations, I think, or the best children's films get right, is that it's balanced between both the children and the adult audience. I think there's plenty there for an adult audience that has a couple of like mildly lewd jokes in it, but is also genuinely funny. I think the the animation style on it is just superb. And Wes Anderson and his usual tricksy ways. <laughs> you wrote a bad song, PD. A bad song is a great song as well. He's rough. <laughs> I have read the book. It wasn't one of my favorite Roald Dahl books, like growing up, but uh, but I loved Roald Dahl. It's been turned into a, an excellent film. Right, so it's a perfect adaptation, though. Like it's, yeah. uh, it's such a magical little world. <laughs> I love those 2D shots of like, it looks like an ant farm where they've cut down through the ground and you can see all the fox warrens and you can see them like moving about in their little holes. It's oh, just great. That That is one of my favourite like Sunday afternoon films. I'm now gutted that I've not put it in my list. Yeah. Victory. Spot on. <laughs> so my number one is... If I'm honest, I think it might be my favourite film. I'm not saying it's the best film ever. I just think it's the film that I've watched the most. And could oh, watch. you're going to take my number one, I think. I think I know what it is. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Do you want me to guess it? Yeah, go on. <laughs> is it The Princess Bride? Yeah. <laughs> ah, that was my number one. <laughs> I could throw another one in there, but it's, uh, it's no, you got you... that would have got to number one. You got in first. Run with it. It's a weird one as well, because it's based on a William Goldman book. And he wrote the screenplay as well. Um, So he was like heavily involved in the making of the film. But the film is way better than the book. (laughs) (laughs) Like the, The book has this weird like storytelling device. Like it's super meta. Like, you know, the film is Columbo telling his... uh, Colombo teaching Fred Savage the story of Princess Bride. <laughs> yeah. You would have thought is enough inner world storytelling that you would need. But in the book, there's an extra level of William Goldman telling the story as if it's a history textbook that's been left. It's a really weird <laughs> storytelling device. And the rest of the plot kind of plays out like very, very similar to the film. I think it probably cuts out a little bit like it's really detail heavy and the film cuts it down to the like fairy tale that it just it should, should be should be yeah. yeah and there's a kind of darker ending as well to the book like basically like wesley's injured at the end and kind of almost left to die it has william goldman as the narrator 
kind of telling you that he believes that he escaped and lived happily ever after, but it's kind of left slightly open-ended. Whereas yeah. the film literally has them like riding off into the sunset. But that like it's it's so funny and it's so heartwarming. And there are better films out there. But if you told me like what film could I put on at any single point and really enjoy, then The Princess Bride would be it. Princess Bride couldn't understand anyone who didn't like that film. I think if you don't like that film, then you don't have a heart. Well, yeah, exactly. It's, got, it's, <laughs> it's so charming. Ah, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's just full of like great performances as well that really bring all those characters to life. <laughs> yeah. I could um, quote moments, but like almost every moment is quotable. Like from start to finish, oh, I love Andre the Giant so much as well. Yeah, big fan of Mandy Patinkin mm. as uh, Iago Montoya, Prepare to Die. Absolutely. And their, their fight scene atop the cliff. What <laughs> you didn't know is I too am left-handed. left-handed. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, it is a great choice because it was also my choice. Okay, so number one, I didn't know it was based on a book. There's no rhyme or reason to this pick. It's I looked at it on the shelf and I wanted to mention it. And then I saw that it was based on the book, so I had an excuse to put it in a list. Which is a another Western. I shouted out one a couple of weeks back with One-Eyed Jacks. And this one's from 1953 uh, by a director called George Stevens, and it's called Shane. I'm not a massive Western fan, and Shane's one of the few films that I really like. Yeah. I mean, agreed. Um, no idea it was based on a book, but... When I was at school, probably pre-GCSE, uh, we had a history teacher who, like a substitute history teacher, who'd come in quite regularly, and all he would do was put on the first hour of Shane, and yeah. we'd just watch that, and that would be the lesson. And so I've seen the first hour of that film probably about 18 times. <laughs> My dad was a yeah. My dad was a bit of a Western fan, so it's another one that I watched growing up. Yeah, the the thing is, I don't think it. I I sort of agree that most westerns are fairly tropey and basic. I don't think Shane is at all. I just think it's a fantastic film. Completely, very little action in it. Yeah, Um, but it's it's got the same thing that all great films have. Where again. I don't know what elevates it particularly. Like the performances are fantastic. Alan Ladd is a lad. <laughs> I mean, he's the man. <laughs> he plays Shane. All the character dynamics are fantastic. It's like got friendship, kind of this romance, which never quite forms, but it's beautifully done. It's like really emotional towards the end as well, but not overly melodramatic or anything. It's just, yeah, I, I was blown away by it. It was another one where just straight away, flat out masterpiece on one watch. No qualms in saying it. And with both that and One-Eyed Jacks, I was like, well, how have I not seen these and how are they not more kind of... I'm, I'm delighted that you're both familiar with it. Do you think it could be that it's a good story first set in yeah, a Western as opposed to being a Western first? I definitely then... agree with that. Like, I, I don't think it has tons of those like western tropes it's still got the saloon or whatever that element to it but you know 
intrinsically the the locations and stuff of a western are always going to be a plus for me because you could just get like stunning scenery and stuff i mean i'm cool with that yeah and the thing andy mentioned i think about american graffiti where sort of gives you a sense of nostalgia for a time that you've never known never been in here like yeah. it absolutely now is that i find it kind of it's a nice escapism like mm. warm hearted or whatever part of escapism is sort of stepping into a different world and it's a world that looks fairly nice to step into <laughs> yeah a world that you want to be part of yeah exactly and they just do a load with the character and this will be interesting actually i mean i probably won't read the book but in the film they sort of imply a lot of his backstory without ever actually telling you or having him say anything and he sort of gets it across just in his face expressions and stuff and really subtle, really great acting where he's clearly had this crazy past. There's probably a lot to tell and they never tell you any of it. And it works brilliantly. I wonder if in the book, whether they actually go into that stuff or not, but I'm very glad they chose not to, because it's just, it's, it's a beautiful thing when it pieces it all together. Yeah. It's the, it's the thing with like film adaptation. So if it's a fully formed book, it's really difficult to go into that level of detail. Like yeah. you, your film's just running too long. It's why you can make a TV series out of a book. Mm-hmm. And I think like the best adaptations, you can just give a hint at that backstory and you get exactly. the same, you get the same meaning without going into all that depth as what the, like the best film adaptations do. A really good choice. So I think another one. Cool. So for my number you one, for, mate? which should have been the princess bride, but you can uh, still go princess bride. <laughs> no, I've got it. I've got a backup. Um, and it's shutter Island. Oh, again, based purely on the film just so happens to be based on a book by, I love this film. I went to see it at the cinema. Me too. Uh, we might've done that together. It doesn't really matter. Um, <laughs> shutter Island, the story of this insane asylum where one of the, patience has just disappeared and these two police officers are brought in to sort of find out what's happened until the mystery thickens and it's posited that the main detective played by Leonardo DiCaprio is in fact a patient at the hospital and this is all played out either as a ruse in his own mind or a ruse for his benefit as part of his sort of extreme treatment it's full of little red herring hints and i think even having watched it twice i'm still not 100 percent convinced which side of the coin i fall on there's loads of good performances but it is a film that's based the beauty in it kind of comes from its plot yeah it's, it's yes. such a good plot i have a reading of the film that i believe but like you can argue with me about it like, yeah. and you can you can definitely take the film in like one of I was going to say one or two ways, but probably one of multiple ways. And I think that that argument has survived rewatch as well. Even on a second watching, it, it kind of did cement what I believed was the final answer. But even on a second watch, there are so many hints to it being another thing. I think that's the thing, though. Like, it's so... If you watch the film again with a standpoint, you can find things that back up your standpoint. But then there are also things that will back up the opposing standpoint like like you say about red herrings like there are just little clues in there on either either side kind of all the time that ultimately don't so conclude 
they don't they the sort of those hints are never spelled out for you that yes this is what actually happened they're just left to left to your interpretation i hate to say it but i think it is spelled out and i i used to be exactly the same but i i think i saw this film three times at the cinema and the last time I did a top 100 movies list, which was many years ago, it was number three Ooh. on my favourite ever films. So yeah, it's a damn good substitute for, for your number one because I think it's a, an absolute fantastic film. But I do feel I really want it to be one way. Basically, I want all the conspiracy stuff to be to be true and for yeah. DiCaprio to be right. Yes, it does leave some like things where you want to go down that path because obviously that's what you want. He's like the main character. You desperately want all his kind of stuff to be true, but it's not like it's pretty clear, I think, on multiple viewings that he is the patient because it's got that fantastic ending as well where he he knows at the end he's he finally has clarity and he chooses that he doesn't want to live with the truth, basically. Ah, is, but has he been convinced that? Because there's drugs in the cigarettes and the food, man. The first two times I was absolutely the same, and that's obviously the more fun way to look at it. Mm-hmm. I was kind of annoyed when I like, turned around. I was like, ah, oh, I can't convince myself any longer. Like, there's too many signs. And even his look at the end, there's no reason for that look to exist if it if it isn't the other way around. I think broadly I agree. I do think he is the patient, but the fact that the mystery still lives, I find exciting i find that quite endearing as a as a movie thing that you, you can have that argument i am almost definitely going to watch this again this yeah week. i was going to say like maybe we should even <laughs> maybe we should even pick this like yeah. uh, it's such a good film yeah fantastic hey well i think that's all of our top fives do you have any interesting honorable mentions i avoided any franchises basically so okay. one's that could have been obviously Lord of the Rings, which, to be fair, in terms of a book adapt- adaptation, I mean, fucking hell, it's it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, Born, Bond, Harry Potter. I actually strongly considered putting the third Harry Potter film on my list. I think it's great, but I didn't want to do franchises. Fair, fair. I wanted to include The Beach because I really, really love the book, but that is an mm-hmm. example of the book being better than the film. I don't think the film quite nails it. Uh, I considered um, Silence of the Lambs as well. Like I didn't include it because I went for a list of things I'd read, but I really wanted to include a like Michael Lewis adaptation who did like Moneyball and The okay. Big Short and things like that. Like He's basically a journalist. But I haven't yeah. read any of them, and I'm not massively interested to read them either, so I probably won't. <laughs> well, I'll just run down some of the others that I had. Um, alongside the sort of Jaws shout, there's Jurassic Park. One for you, Marco, the man who would be king, Connery and Kane. Yeah, I didn't realise it was based on a book. It wouldn't have made my top five anyway, but it no. is obviously pretty jokes. I've got the 39 steps. I've, I've elected for the Hitchcock one, but there's been quite a lot of adaptations. Yeah, a lot of and Hitchcock is. Yeah. They're all slightly different, um, mm-hmm. and most of them are pretty good. Um, but yeah, I've, I've elected for the Hitchcock one in my long list. There Will Be Blood, Rosemary's Baby, and I've got a few other sort of the big classics. The Remains of the Day, Schindler's List. 
Goodfellas, The Exorcist, LA Confidential. Cool. Well, that's all from us at Screen and Needle. Thanks very much for joining us. Next week will be Mark's Choices. Do you want to tell us what your film, album, and top five list is going to be, buddy? Yes, I do. Although I am tempted to change the film to Shutter Island now, but we'll wait. We'll wait. Okay. Maybe, maybe down the line. So the film is going to be Army of Shadows by Jean-Pierre Melville. The album is going to be an artist called Mitski, and I'm going with her debut album, Lush. And top five... We'll go uh, foreign language films. Okay. Join us next week uh, when we talk about these three things. But for now, that's bye from us at Screen and Needle. Bye.